The Black Widow Everybody knows that the females will devour the males after mating, but how many of you knew that it's only sometimes true? It doesn't happen every time. There's a different sort of Black Widow to discuss today, though. This story is perhaps one of the most chilling examples of this type of killer. After murdering two of her husbands for the insurance money, Stacy Castor then attempted to pin the murders on her daughter, Ashley, and when that didn't work, she tried to kill her, too. There's a lot of questions bouncing off the walls in between insurance fraud, murder, and attempted filicide. And we're going to do our best to figure out how the hell you get from A to B to C. Rise and shine for true crime comedy time. This is my second self and I. Welcome back to my second self and I. As always, I am your host, Matt, and at some point, the voice in my head, Alex, is sure to chime in on what we have to talk about today. Gonna be a two-week format moving forward. I've got too much on my plate to continue with weekly uploads for now, and it will give me that much more time to prep. Don't really have a whole lot to catch anybody up on. The bread I made this weekend turned out awesome, and nothing traumatizing has happened since our last episode, so yeah. Things are great. Speaking of the last episode, thank you for listening. And if you haven't yet, go ahead and do that, eh, like, right after this. Go ahead. It'll be fun. It's pretty fun. I haven't seen Tony around in a few days. I think he went back to Wisconsin for a few weeks to visit family, so I don't think he'll be showing up today. Other than that, holy shit, folks, do I have a story for you today. What do you say we just skip the part where I beg for reviews and just tell a damn story, huh? Stacy Castor was born somewhere in the area surrounding Syracuse, New York on July 24, 1967. Her mother, Judy Eaton, was given untold handfuls of questions every day by her young daughter, so much so that, at most, Stacy was only allowed to ask why three times a day. On top of Stacy being extra curious about everything, as most kids are, she was also hard-headed and stubborn, which is also like a lot of kids. Then, extremely suddenly, 18 years later, she meets a guy named Michael Wallace. Michael had such a glorious mustache that the two had chemistry almost instantly when they met, and really took a shine to one another. Stacy knew right away that this man had something special, and she wanted to hang on to him for as long as she could. True love, if you will. It didn't take long for the two of them to start a family, either. By 1988, they have a daughter named Ashley. Then, out of nowhere, in April 1990, they get married. Whoa, slow down, y'all. And the next year, their other daughter, Bree, is born. Ashley, the older daughter, would take after Stacy more, and Bree was a bit more of a daddy's girl and took to Michael. Michael and Stacy also worked opposing schedules for their jobs. Michael was a night mechanic, and Stacy was an ambulance dispatcher by day. I know that this probably isn't the case, but I really want Night Mechanic to be a vigilante-type superhero. Maybe somebody's car breaks down in a rough neighborhood, and some poor guy is about to get mugged by four other dudes with baseball bats and crowbars, when suddenly Night Mechanic peels out around the corner on a motorcycle. He slams into one of the four guys with his bike and beats the shit out of the other three with their own weapons, all while never removing his helmet. 
Then Night Mechanic fixes the guy's car and goes on about its business. But since that probably only exists in this show's universe and didn't really happen, let's move on to an actual thing that was said about Michael. In one interview, Stacy said he was larger than life. Quote, Mike was the life of the party. If you needed something that Mike had, he would give it to you. I've known a lot of guys like that. Gunnut and his whole family are like that. Except for, you know, facial hair isn't really their strong suit. I think his dad had a stash in the 80s. In fact, the picture I can think I remember seeing of him is pretty close to the one that you'll see of Michael Wallace. But I don't think I've ever seen Gunnut with a mustache, so... As long as it has nothing to do with facial hair, they'll offer to help in any way they can, or if they can't do it themselves, they probably know somebody else who can. The only problem Michael couldn't solve is one our dear narrator and many others can probably relate to. Michael was struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. On top of him rarely seeing his wife thanks to opposite work schedules, the two slowly began to drift apart. You know, I'm pretty open about how I figured that out for myself and... There was a time when I went through something really similar. I won't go into detail here, but I can tell you firsthand just how difficult it is to deal with all of those things going on at the same time. And then, much like how my situation did, um, it started to get worse for Mike Mike. Poor old Mikey boy. Oh, Michelangelo. During the last few months of 1999, Mike's health... I'm just going to call him Mike. It's, his name comes up a lot in this, and I want to say Michael the entire time. Mike's health starts to decline. Nobody could quite figure out what was wrong with him either, though. Some family members saw him acting shaky, wobbly, coughing a lot. He was swollen and kind of purplish looking. After some prodding by his relatives, Mike had tried to go see a doctor to get a diagnosis, but... All they had told him was that he might have an inner ear disorder. That, that's a shit, doctor. Doctor, why am I purple? Your inner ear's all messed up. That'll be $5,000. No. A few weeks later, Michael is found unresponsive on the couch by Bree. She was the only person at home at the time, and also only 11, which would be rough. She calls the paramedics, and they get him to the hospital, but despite their best efforts, Mike was later pronounced dead. Doctors told the family that he had died of a heart attack. Stacy was rather quick to accept this answer. However, Michael's sister was skeptical, probably because being swollen and purple for three months isn't a common symptom of an inner ear disorder, that, at least that I've ever heard of, and requests an autopsy. Stacy disagrees, though. She says she believes what the doctors have told her and that an autopsy is not necessary. After his death and when everything settles down, Stacy is able to cash in on a $55,000 life insurance policy and uses the money to take Ashley and Bree to Disney World. I don't know if I'd be able to go to literally the happiest place on earth after something like that. Dad just died out of nowhere. Let's go to Florida and get churros from Eeyore and Gaston? No. I don't, I don't want to do that. I like... I feel like Disney World would be better if you're already happy. I don't think I would want to do that. Over the course of the next three years, Stacy and the kids managed to get by alright, until she winds up getting a job at Liverpool Heating and Air Conditioning. Then it starts to get a little bit more interesting. On August 3rd, 2003, while working at the new job, Stacy meets the owner of Liverpool Heating and Air Conditioning, David Castor, 
and then they get married the same day. No, not in the same day. They do get married, though, and a caster she will remain for the rest of this story. She would later say about David, He was very conscientious, hardworking, very into outdoors. He had snowmobiles, four-wheelers, and a boat. He also had a son of his own named David Jr. David Jr. said that he had a pretty good childhood, lots of happy times and togetherness. Right up until David Sr. banged his dome piece up pretty good one day while out riding one of those four-wheelers from just a few seconds ago. David Sr. seemed to just stop being considerate of others, especially how he would make them feel, which, of course, would eventually lead to a divorce from his current wife, whose name I don't know, it has not come up in my research. At the same time, Big David and Little David would also start to become more alienated. It wasn't until David and Stacy get married that David Sr. began to find any sort of peace. Ashley and Bree found it quite difficult to live with David Sr. and were very vocal about how unhappy they were with the marriage and how they didn't want their father replaced. David, I don't think, was well equipped to handle that. Stacy said in a 2020 interview that, much like her younger self, her kids also like to question everything, and even though David wasn't trying to be a stepfather, he still expected everything to be done without question. There was a movie made about this case called Poison Love, I didn't watch it, and it depicts David Sr. removing the bedroom door from one of the girls as punishment. Don't know if that really happened or if it was just something that they threw in the movie, but it did remind me that when I was a kid, my dad also removed the door from my bedroom at one point. I don't think it was a punishment, though. I think more likely me or one of my other brothers broke the door somehow, and he just didn't feel like getting a new one because we probably would end up breaking that one, too. Either way, it definitely didn't help when I started playing the Resident Evil GameCube remake and came to the part of the game where, bear with me here, you go back inside of the mansion from doing stuff out in the cabin and then now you go back in and a lot of the zombies that you already killed have been eaten and replaced by those big green hunter enemy things. Yeah, didn't like those, because I had a pretty active imagination as a kid, still do, so I would have nightmares about them just standing outside my not door waiting for me to get up and go pee or whatever, and it made it kind of hard to sleep for a little while, but let's get back to stuff time. Story time. Let's get back to story time. I like story time better than stuff time. Let's get back to story time. August 22nd, 2005. Around 2 p.m., Stacy calls 911 in a panic, saying that David never made it to work, and she last spoke to him around 5 a.m. when she locked her out of the bedroom. Sergeant Michael Norton spoke with Stacy about David's behavior that weekend, and she said, quote, David got upset, took a bottle of Southern Comfort, went into the bedroom, locked himself in, and reportedly got drunk. Wouldn't come out. She later tells another detective that she assumed he was just in there sleeping it off. Friend at the time, Danny Coleman, said that Stacy knew he was sleeping because, quote, when she put her ear up to the door, she could hear him sleeping. I don't have any idea what the fuck that's supposed to mean, unless she meant that he was snoring? But you would just say you hear them snoring, wouldn't you? You wouldn't say, I can hear them sleeping in the other room. Like, Alex, come over here and put your ear to the door and just, just listen. Can, can you hear it? Can you hear that? Can you hear him sleeping? Can, can you hear him sleeping in there? That's not a thing that normally happens. So, whatever. She's reportedly full of shit, we know and the police are starting to suspect about as much also. They kick in the door to the bedroom where they find David. He's face down, naked on the bed, and has apparently committed some kind of suicide. 
At least that's what they thought initially. Until they noticed some interesting things on the nightstand next to the bed. A bottle of apricot brandy, some cranberry juice, and two drinking glasses. One of which was about half full of a bright green liquid. Most cranberry juice is red, so I don't think that was it. And then they look underneath the bed and discover a not completely full jug of antifreeze. That is for sure bright green. Also in the kitchen, this is dumb, they notice, sitting right on top of everything else in the trash can, a turkey baster, which looked like it had traces of antifreeze in it. I think we can upgrade her full of shit status from reportedly to almost certainly at this point. Stacy said, quote, David was depressed because he had recently lost his father, and that possibly his drinking and suicide that weekend was as a result of him being depressed about his father's death. I'm having a really hard time wrapping my head around why anybody would drink antifreeze to commit suicide. That just seems like such a not great way to do that. And I think a few other people are experiencing the same problem, because nobody believes Stacy at all during this including David's ex-wife, Janice Poisson Farmer. I don't know if that's how she pronounces it, but that's how I'm going to say it. Everybody else said that no way in hell is this a suicide. No way. Nobody believes it. And it became especially puzzling to figure out when you realize that David was also an outdoorsy type of guy. And what do those types of guys usually have at least one of in their homes? A tent. No. I'll give you two more guesses. Glow-in-the-dark toilet paper. What? No. Uh, skateboard? Why would you take a skateboard into the woods? Can't skate on leaves? No. There was also a shotgun in the house. Which begs the question, why would you bother poisoning yourself with antifreeze when you have a gun? And we'll talk about it in a little bit, but even a small amount can really fuck you up for a long time. It's not a pretty way to go. The police see all this evidence and begin to think Stacy may have had something to do with this whole thing. They also found David's will, which has a very strange detail in it. Everything is to be left to Stacy and her kids, but absolutely nothing for his own son, David Jr. Which just seems real convenient for Stacy, doesn't it? Oh, just so happens my immediate family is secure after this? Huh. Weird. Yeah, Stacy, it is weird. Almost as weird as David having zero alcohol found in his system. Toxicology reports showed that he died of ethylene glycol poisoning from ingesting antifreeze. And would you like to know what else is weird? What's weird were the certain similarities between David's death and her previous husband Michael's death. Another detective on the case, Dominic the Italian Christmas Donkey Spinelli, had also been busy trying to figure out why anybody would poison themselves with antifreeze and reached out to Cuyahoga County Sergeant Michael Norton to get some more information. They set up wiretaps on Stacy's phone line, they set up cameras that look straight at Stacy's house, they also set up a camera to observe the graves where Mike and Dave were buried, which was easy because uh, they were right next to each other in plots that Stacy had purchased. Police were already pretty sure that she poisoned David, but now they wanted to know if she could have poisoned Mike as well. So in September 2007, they acquire a warrant to exhume the body. When Sergeant Michael Norton had previously spoken with Stacy about Michael's health, she claimed that Mikey Mike had all kinds of health problems, and just everything's wrong with him, nothing works right. This was later found to be a lie, because when they examined his medical records, the worst thing that had ever happened to him was that he had a hernia at one point. 
But before we talk about what they found after the exhumation, let's talk about what actually happens in your body when you drink antifreeze. Antifreeze contains propylene glycol, ethylene glycol, and methanol, two of which are incredibly dangerous to ingest, and the other one is commonly found in some foods and cosmetics. Propylene glycol is in all sorts of delicious stuff. Kool-Aid, Crystal Light, Country Time Powdered Lemonade, Ramen, Mac and Cheese, Ranch Dressing, Thousand Island Dressing, Caesar Dressing, French Dressing, Cake Mix, Cookies, Brownies, Cupcakes, Sodas, Cinnamon Buns, Cookies, you get it. It's in lots and lots and lots of stuff, and I eat it all the time, and look at me. We're both fine. The other two components of antifreeze are super deadly, even in small amounts. Ethylene glycol and methanol both metabolize into some other nastier chemicals, but ethylene glycol is the worst one. Ethylene glycol breaks down into glycolic acid and oxalic acid, which causes calcium oxalate crystals to form in kidneys, which then leads to renal tubular focal degeneration. Ethylene glycol also affects a litany of other organs like your lungs, and in some cases can cause pretty severe brain damage. Bonutty wants drain damage! On top of all that nasty stuff, everything else inside of you will also be riddled with crystals! And not the special healing kind that witchy girls try to pass off as medicine. The bad kind. Made of calcium oxalate. But we find ourselves now at a crossroads. At this intersection lies the answer to the question that has been plaguing us this whole time. How many people actually commit suicide by drinking antifreeze? I'm gonna be honest, I could not find a direct answer to that question. However, I do have some stats to help lead us in a direction. There are over 5,000 reported cases of ethylene glycol poisoning per year in the United States. The United States currently has around 332 million residents. 5,000 is about 0.0015% of the total population. Of those, we also have to factor in accidental ingestion such as children or not-so-bright adults because it is a bright green liquid and ethylene glycol itself is colorless and tastes sort of sweet. In 2021, there were around 48,000 suicides, which is 0.0144%. And so while I can't quite find the definitive value for antifreeze suicides, I think we can all safely say that it's not a very large percentage of the population. And not trying to make light of suicides or minimize anything like that, but drinking antifreeze is not the way to grow about it. It's not a quick process. It's incredibly painful and it also doesn't always even work. You'd more likely end up just having to get dialysis for the rest of your life on top of not being able to swallow properly. Let's do a quick recap. Stacy is born, makes it to 18, meets and marries Mike soon after, has two kids. About 10 years later, Mike suddenly dies. Disney World, new job, new husband, new stepbrother. Life is weird, but good. New husband suddenly dies. Wait a minute, how did he die? We don't believe you. Exhume Mike's body. Okay, here we are. After exhuming his body, they're looking for the crystals that would be present if he were indeed poisoned with ethylene glycol, and boom bam, they of course find them everywhere. And it's right about now that Spinelli wants to have a little chat with our friend Stacy. During the interview, he asks Stacy, Do you remember which glass you poured the cranberry juice in? And she responded with, When I poured the antifree- I- I mean, I mean cranberry juice- and whenever Spinelli calls her out on this little slip of the tongue, she accused him of trying to frame her and put a stop to the interview. Five days after the failed interview, investigators show up to Ashley's school on her very first day of college to inform her that her father had not in fact died of a heart attack, rather, he had been poisoned. As you can imagine, Ashley was pretty shook by this, and immediately calls her mom. 
Stacy, who is panicking really hard right now, invites her over to drink to help take the edge off. Ashley recalls her mother never really encouraging her to drink before that, and that the Smirnoff ice she gave her tasted kind of funny, but that she drank it anyway as she had no reason to suspect that she was trying to harm her. Yeah, Smirnoff ice does taste kind of funny, as in not good. I don't remember that being very good at all. Stuff's gross. Ugh. Still didn't make her feel too good, and Stacy gave her a pill to sleep, and Ashley went to school again the next day feeling quite hungover, I'm sure. After school, Stacy once again invites Ashley over to have a mother-daughter drinking day, this time with screwdrivers instead of Smirnoff. Unbeknownst to Ashley, there was also some sort of drug mixed into the OJ Sprite and vodka. I think sleeping pills? And after she passes out, Stacy used a teaspoon to feed more of it to her. Fortunately, Bree came over the next morning and she finds Ashley alive but unresponsive on the bed. She immediately calls 911 and they rush her to the hospital where they're able to save her, but just barely. When she regains consciousness, detectives question her about an apparent suicide note they'd found next to her bed, which was pretty difficult to answer as she hadn't recalled ever writing one. See, when Ashley was recovering from almost dying, Stacy had told investigators that she had taken morphine and codeine on her own and left a 750-page suicide note confessing to the murders of Mike and David. Why would she do that, you ask? Because Ashley was resentful of Mike for favoriting Bree and because David had been mistreating Stacy. Keep in mind this is all coming from Stacy. Who, by the way, was also more concerned with letting everyone know about the note than she was with her daughter's well-being. And when Ashley finally wakes up, they ask her about the note, to which Ashley responds, I did not try to kill myself, nor did I leave a suicide note, and goes on to deny killing her father or stepfather. So the police say, you know what? We're going to go ahead and arrest Stacy Castor for murder. All of that happened in September 2007, and by December, Stacy was officially indicted for one count each of second-degree murder, second-degree attempted murder, and a plot to present a forged will. And don't think they went through all the trouble of getting a warrant to exhume Mike's body for nothing. Those are not easy to acquire. You'd better have a damn good reason to go to a judge requesting an exhumation. And they decide about a year after she's arrested, in September 2008, that, yeah, all that Michael stuff can totally be admitted into evidence against her. If only there was someone she could call to come help her out in this hour of need. Wait a minute. There is! Night Mechanic! He has awesome music and an even awesomer superpower. Able to harness the physical energy from possessing a superhuman work ethic, Night Mechanic is able to summon an astral motorcycle that he uses to make his way quickly around the city to any car trouble a distressed citizen may have. Night Mechanic is fixing up your bumper. Night Mechanic is doing it for free. Night Mechanic. His face is always covered. Night mechanic, always wear a helmet. See, I told you he had awesome music. Okay, seriously though, we're almost done and there's another crazy thing that also probably happened that I want to get to. 
During the trial for all this, Stacy hired a defense attorney who would try to stick to the Ashley did it defense. And the prosecution, District Attorney William Fitzpatrick and Chief Assistant District Attorney Christine Garvey had a literal mountain of evidence against her. First of all, forensic evidence from the computer the suicide note was written on was found to have DNA evidence, forensic linguistic evidence, and perhaps most damning, it was written while Ashley was at school. There was also the substantial amount of money she stood to gain from David's death, which was around $200,000 in various properties and insurance claims. They also found Stacy's DNA, but not David's, on the drinking glass containing antifreeze, also on the turkey baster. They found that, based on the progression of David's illness, this is disgusting right here, Stacy had most likely force-fed him antifreeze through the turkey baster for four days while he slowly and painfully died, then staged it to look like a suicide while poorly covering up the evidence. And do you remember that bogus will from earlier that left everything to Stacy and her kids but nothing to David Jr.? Yeah, um, her friends got immunity and testified against her saying that they were a false witness on the signing of the document. Whoops. Now it's Stacy's turn to take the stand, and what does she say? Unbelievably, she will not let go of the story that Ashley was the one who did it. When asked to elaborate on how she could have done this, Stacy provided no answer beyond that she thought Ashley may be mentally ill. During her own murder trial, she still tries to place the blame on her own daughter. What a monstrous piece of shit lady. The jury isn't buying it either, and after a couple days of deliberation and tons of evidence to consider, on February 5th, 2009, they find her guilty of second-degree murder for David and second-degree attempted murder for Ashley. March 5th, one month later, Chief Assistant District Attorney Christine Garvey requested Judge Fahey that he impose the maximum punishment due to the brutality of David's death. Also, while Ashley was dying on her bed, Mom was out back partying it up with her friends. Thanks, Mom. Garvey said, quote, She is cold, calculating, and without any emotion for what she has done. Human life is sacred. Stacy Castor places no value on human life, not even her own flesh and blood. To Stacy Castor, human beings are disposable. Then David Jr. gets a chance to speak. He says to Judge Fahey that, quote, Your Honor, Castor is a monster and a threat to society. She has created so much pain and death with this, creating multiples of pain and death in the families of those she has hurt. Now it's Ashley's turn, and what she says is just heart-wrenching. She says, quote, I never knew what hate was until now. Even though I do hate her, I still love her at the same time. That bothers me. It is so confusing. How can you hate someone and love them at the same time? I just wish that she would say sorry for everything she did, including all the lies. As horrible as it makes me feel, this is goodbye, Mom. As hard as you tried, I survived, and I will survive because now I'm surrounded by people that love me. I'm going to do good things in this world, despite making me, in every sense of the word, an orphan. Judge Fahey then tells Castor that he has never seen a parent attempt to murder their child in order to set them up for a crime that they themselves committed and considers her in a class all of her own. And she is sentenced to 25 years to life for the murder of David, 
and another 25 years for attempted murder of Ashley. Also, an additional 1-4 to four years for the forged will stuff. They could have pushed forward for another charge on Mike Wallace's death, but as she was in her 40s at the time of sentencing and received a minimum of 50 years, it really wasn't necessary as they figured she would most likely die in prison anyway. And that should be where the story ends, right? Ashley and Bree are alive and doing well today. They're getting by just fine as far as we all know. But in 2010, Fitzpatrick started looking into some other interesting things surrounding Stacy's past. In particular, the 2002 death of her father, Jerry Daniels. Witnesses say that on the day he was to be released from the hospital while being treated for a lung ailment, Stacy came to visit him with an already open can of soda. Hmm. And, surprise, surprise, the very next day, Jerry dies. Why is that suspicious? She had his remains cremated, and his estate and wealth were all passed down to, you guessed it, Stacy. As far as Black Widow killers go, Stacy Caster plays the part flawlessly. In fact, no one can even hold a candle to her, except for probably Lynn Turner, who we'll cover very soon. David Jr. and his mother, Jenny's Poisson Farmer, then sued Stacy and her friends, the Pulaskis, who helped with the forged will, for damages and were to receive around $380,000, but this was overturned in 2014, and as far as I know, nothing ever came of it. Unfortunately, we'll never know for sure if she did kill her father, because in June of 2016, Stacy dies in prison while at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women, most likely from a heart attack due to her enlarged heart. Isn't that beautifully ironic? The most heartless woman we've talked about so far on this show died of an overgrown heart. Just a tiny bit of petty revenge to be had by David Jr. here. All three men in Stacy's life, Mike, David, and Jerry, were all buried next to each other in a plot that Stacy had purchased. After she died, David Jr. was given permission to relocate his father's remains and also erected a new headstone which removed Stacy's name and title as David's wife. Which is just beautiful. Go, good for you, David. I like that he did that. Good for him. And there you have it, folks. One of the crazier stories I've read up on in a couple of weeks. That shit was dark. But not to worry. We have a new superhero to aid us in our time of need. Even if it is dark, I'm going to do more with Night Mechanic. That was really fun for me. I truly, truly hope you all enjoyed that. And as always, you know, I do try my hardest to get it right. But if I missed anything, feel free to let me know on whichever thing you can. And I'll address it in a future episode. If you want to leave a review or something for me somewhere, that's awesome and will definitely help the show. But I think what would be more helpful right now is for you to tell people about this show and get them to listen. I don't care if you have to literally zip tie them to a chair and blast it at them at full volume in a tiny, tiny room. Just get them to listen, alright? Just go. Hog tie your friends and put me in their ear holes. Don't actually do that, but spread the word for me, huh? In the meantime, I've got dinner to go make, and I'll see you all in a couple weeks. Make smart choices, everybody. Stay kind. Bye.